1: Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe?
2: Welcome to Politico's EU Confidential Podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, sitting in once again for the holidaying Ryan Heath. And in today's podcast, we're back on the Brexit beat. We get up to date with everything that's been happening with Politico's Brexit editor, James Randerson.
3: You might think that the EU would be would be saying, well, this is great. Alas, the Brits are getting serious and they're you know, putting forward specifics and you know, we've got some meat to negotiate on actually, in a a way, what the UK is doing here is kind of tweaking the nose of their counterparts on the other side of the table.
2: And we hear from former Irish Prime Minister and former EU Ambassador to Washington, John Bruton, who's in pretty candid form when it comes to spelling out what he thinks Brexit means for Britain. So you could say, and I'm about to, that Bruton gets brutal with Britain on Brexit.
0: The truth is that, once we move in the direction of Brexit, the tensions will rise, the additional complications which you cannot even conceive of now, will emerge. And instead of working on them together, UK and the European Union will inevitably, because they are going to be divided into two political blocks be working upon them separately and potentially in an antagonistic way.
2: And in our EU WTF feature, I'm joined by two political reporters, Harry Cooper and Joanna Pluczynska, to talk about Trump's Scottish golf course, academic freedom and a popularity boost for the EU. That's all in this week's EU Confidential. Okay, so first to Brexit. Let's find out what's been going on in the Brexit front. And I'm joined by Politico's Brexit news editor, James Randerson. Hi, James. Hello. So just bring us up to date. What has been happening on the Brexit front over the last few weeks?
3: Well, we are waiting with bated breath for the next round of uh, negotiations, the third round next week in Brussels. And for the last couple of weeks, the UK has brought out this kind of flurry of position papers on various different subjects. There have been seven in total on a whole variety of things. The The most important ones, really, are on uh, Northern Ireland, their ideas for solutions there, what to do about the European Court of Justice, which was a real sticking point in various bits of the negotiations, and their ideas for a, a future customs relationship with the European Union. So... Uh, this is you know, you might think that the EU would be would be saying, Well, this is great. Alas, the Brits are getting serious and they're, you know, putting forward specifics and you know, we got some meat to negotiate on. Actually, in a in a way, what the UK is doing here is kind of tweaking the nose of the of their counterparts on the other side of the table because Most of the stuff, not all of it, but most of it is about the future relationship with the EU. It's not about the things that the EU wants to talk about, which are these separation issues. But um, the UK has one very important point to make, which is that, you know, for example, with Northern Ireland, that is a separation issue in the eyes of the EU. But you can't really make progress on that until you work out... Where you're at on the customs arrangements, and so you know the UK is saying, well, we have to talk about that.
2: Right, because the EU has said we need to sort out the separation arrangements before we can go on to talk about the future relationship. Right, and of course the so the UK a little bit is trying to say, well, actually that separate that kind of nice clean line you've drawn isn't isn't so simple. It's right?
3: really arbitrary, and you know all of these things are kind of meshed to, together in ways that are very disent you know you you just can't disentangle. Right, so are we getting a, a kind of over
2: vision from these papers on how the UK foresees that, that future relationship? Are we getting the, the nitty-gritty, the detail that allows us to kind of paint the bigger picture?
3: Uh, yeah, to a degree. We've got some more detail, and certainly we have more of an idea of where the UK stands overall. And, and I'd say that the, the picture is something like this, that actually... By and large, it's saying we want things to remain pretty much the same in most areas. You know, it's talking, just a few examples, it's talking about wanting to harmonise food safety standards, so, you know, they're not talking about kind of going off in a different direction there. On civil judicial cooperation, so this is about, you know, whether court judgments made in one country will apply in another, and, you know, having confidence over contracts made on either side of of the border, they want that to pretty much stay the same. On data protection issues. They want to adopt all of the EU standards, essentially, you know, and and on other areas besides. There are really three big areas, though, where the UK is trying to engineer divergence. And you can see in some of these papers that it's kind of really had to tie itself in a knot to find a way of doing it. And the three areas are really, they want to end freedom of movement. They uh, want to make their own trade deals. And they have a, a red line, which well, arguably is turning into more of a kind of pink line on the European Court of Justice. They want to, as far as possible, not be under the judicial, the jurisdiction of that of the EU's highest court. Now, I think that's turning into less of an absolute position, but nonetheless, they want to kind of back away from that.
2: Right, so, I mean, obviously, to their critics, that is the old having your cake and eating it, right? Keeping the bits you like of the EU and, uh, and not... And I guess, has that been pretty much the EU reaction? Or, or where have they come down on it?
3: Yeah, to, exactly. To their critics, this is... then Not so much cherry-picking, but, but sort of, you know, ripping up the entire cherry tree and and throwing away the, 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 the stones that you don't want. You know, it's... Uh, the, the reaction from the EU, um, I mean, in public... It's been fairly muted. It's been kind of, uh, oh, yeah, you know, thanks very much. We'll take a look at these. But, um, you know, what we're talking about next week are the, are the three separation issues, the, the rights of the EU citizens in the UK after Brexit, the Northern Irish border, and, you know, perhaps biggest of all, the, the Brexit bill itself. In private, I think they're, you know, they're really quite... Uh, irritated by this approach from the UK some of our reporters have been talking to you know EU officials and diplomats to get reactions from them kind of off the record and they're saying you know that, that they regard this as kind of a distraction tactic from the UK that is trying to tempt the EU into talking about these future relationship things and i think you know fundamentally what they want next week is the UK to move beyond its position that it has at the moment on the Brexit bill, which is to acknowledge that they have financial obligations and to engage in a substantive way and say, well, okay, here's our methodology that we think should be applied to generate this bill. Let's now talk about your methodology and come to somewhere in the middle. The UK has, you know... Really refuse to engage on that kind of level, on that kind of detail on the bill.
2: So, as you said, um, one of the one of the papers is about uh, Northern Ireland at the Irish border. Uh, we have an interview with John Bruton, the former Prime Minister of the Republic of Ireland, uh, coming up in a few minutes. Um, can you sketch out what what the UK vision was in terms of that border?
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, Northern Ireland is an interesting one because the political goal, I think, on both sides genuinely is is pretty much aligned. I mean, nobody wants a return to the, the bad old days in Northern Ireland, and I think there is a genuine realisation that they need to come up with some creative solutions here to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, the UK went beyond where it was before it was saying, you know, we don't want a, a hard border. They went beyond that and said, we actually want no physical border infrastructure at all along the 310-mile border. They said, I mentioned, you know, harmonising food standards, that's that's something that will help particularly for these kind of cross-border supply chains in Northern Ireland. It, it reiterated this commitment, well, I, at the moment it's the case that if you're uh, a citizen in Northern Ireland, you can choose whether you have British or Irish citizenship or both. So they kind of made it clear that post-Brexit, citizens in Northern Ireland will also be able to have EU citizenship effectively. By being citizens of Ireland you know they, they put some flesh on the bones of these ideas of, of customs arrangements and they also reiterated a commitment to the common travel area which is something that actually predates uh, the European Union by, by some way it actually dates from the, the 1920s and the formation of the Irish Free State and it, it effectively, well the, the law that has followed that allows Irish citizens to be viewed in the UK in pretty much the same way as UK citizens so um, so yeah. that means kind of
2: free movement, right? So if you yeah. are, if you are from the Republic of Ireland, you're free to travel to the UK. You're free to work in the UK, I think. And in fact, I think you can vote in some UK elections as well, yes, right? Yes, okay. So right, so it's a kind of free movement zone that predates.
3: Yeah, and it includes you know the Isle of Man and the Channel Islands as well. It's not just about Ireland, but it's crucially they said, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna keep that even after we've uh, you know we're out of free movement um, EU style.
2: Right, and you'll hear John Bruton talk about some of the questions that that throws up in a minute. Anyway, that's great, James. I'm pleased to say we have made substantial progress during this part of the podcast. <laughs> so we Just... will be able to move on to the next phase. Uh, that's um, one for the real uh, Brexit connoisseurs. One for the fans, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. One for the hardcore Brexit fans. Uh, thanks a lot, James Randerson. My pleasure. Now, just before our next interview, a reminder that you can contact us via email on playbook at politico.eu. And uh, we're also very grateful if you can give us a rating. Five is always a good number uh, on your uh, podcast platform of choice if it has star ratings and or write us a review. And we're also very grateful if you share the show on social media and good old fashioned word of mouth. Now, next to John Bruton, a former Irish Prime Minister and former EU ambassador to the United States. I caught up with him earlier this week via Skype, so the audio quality may not be quite tip-top, but it was a very interesting conversation in which he talked about the repercussions for Ireland of Brexit, also talked about what he thought it meant uh, for Britain and for the EU as a whole, and I started by asking him what he made of Britain's proposals so far.
0: I don't think Britain really has set out the detail of how its proposals would work. And it is very difficult for them to do that until they know what their preferred ultimate destination is and what of that they can feasibly obtain. For example, it would appear that Britain wants to be out of the single market and out of the customs union, and out from under any jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. Now, if it is to meet those three objectives, essentially, we are going to have to have a hard border. Now, whether the hard border occurs at the border, or 10 or 15 or 50 miles either side of the border, you are still going to have to have a system to check whether goods entering the European Union in Ireland from the UK meet EU standards of safety, meet EU standards of rules of origin, and have had paid in respect of them all the relevant EU tariffs, which in some cases are very high indeed. The real burden is going to be not the border as such. Although that will be significant in a symbolic sense, but the very large costs that will be added to the doing of business and you know the operation of normal commerce between Britain and Ireland and the rest of the European Union.
2: Do you not have any sense of how big a burden that's going to be for Ireland, for you know the administration that's involved?
0: Well, it would be very substantial, uh, uh, very, very substantial. There is, I would think, considerable uh, annoyance in Ireland that a decision that Britain is taking is going to impose these costs on us.
2: Is there any case to be made that Britain should pay either the Republic of Ireland or the EU for all these adjustments? I mean, or that the EU 27 collectively should compensate Ireland? Because obviously the biggest burden, it would appear, is, is going to fall on Ireland.
0: I think that's you know a matter that probably may be the subject of legal argument. The reality is Britain is pulling out of a contract, and this is a contract that it freely entered into in 1973 and reaffirmed in 1975. And as a result of Britain pulling out of that contract, Costs are to be imposed on the other contracting parties. Not just one-off costs involved in leaving, but permanent ongoing costs as a result of the additional barriers that are going to be imposed. It could be argued that as this is a British decision, which is not forced upon them by anyone else, that they ought to bear some of the costs that this decision is imposing on others. Now, I don't, I don't know whether that's part of the likely negotiating strategy, but it does seem to me, if you look at what happens if somebody in business pulls out of a contract and thereby imposes costs on others, one can see that there could at least be a moral responsibility on Britain.
2: I guess looking on the the other side, from the plus perspective, if you like, is there much to be gained, obviously, in terms of financial sector jobs or, or other opportunities that Brexit may present to Ireland?
0: Well... There are already opportunities being created in the sense of a number of institutions uh, are moving some of their operations into the European Union in anticipation of Britain no longer having full access to the European financial markets for its services, our Cork or elsewhere in Ireland.
2: So how big is the upside and how big is the downside potentially to Ireland? Does the, the down still upweigh the up?
0: Oh, the down far up outweighs the upside. And the upside will be significant in a few areas, like finance. But the downside, for example, involving the total disruption of the all-Ireland agriculture market, where 30% of the milk produced in Northern Ireland is processed in the Republic, where a very large proportion of the poultry produced in the Republic is processed in Northern Ireland, that will be completely disrupted because tariffs will have to be collected on poultry and on milk uh, at the border or, or you know, somewhere either on either side of the border. The costs involved in that will disrupt the market completely. And I think the benefits, uh, if there are benefits from Brexit, will possibly be concentrated in a small number of urban areas, whereas the losses, which will be much, much greater, uh, will be spread throughout the whole country. The truth is that once we move in the direction of Brexit, the tensions will rise, the additional complications, which you cannot even conceive of now, will emerge. And instead of working on them together... UK and the European Union will inevitably, because they are going to be divided into two political blocks, be working upon them separately and potentially in an antagonistic way. This is one of the greatest seismic shifts in relationships in Northern Europe that has occurred in the last hundred years. Uh, it represents, in a very real sense, a profound divorce. From Ireland's point of view, um, we have, as you know, felt ourselves to be overshadowed by Britain during the period from the 17th up to the early 20th centuries, but we never wanted to find ourselves with no connection with Britain. The risk is now, as a result of this divorce, that the the goals of extreme separatists in Ireland will be achieved,
2: but in a very costly way. Mm. You know, the British line seems to be also, you know, we had a common travel area before. Both countries were members of the EU. That can continue afterwards. So, you know, in a sense, their argument is that it can be business as usual. What do you say to that? Well, I I
0: don't know how it's going to operate. If a, let's say you have a couple, one of whom is Polish, the other of whom is Irish, and they're living in Dublin and they decide they want to go via Northern Ireland to the United Kingdom. How are you going to stop them? How are you going to allow the Irish wife to proceed and stop the Polish husband? I mean, these are practical questions. Now, I know it's possible to say you might be able, by controls in the workplace, to prevent the Polish husband from working while allowing the Irish wife to work. But that's going to involve a whole new set of controls, which, of course, in this instance, the cost will have to be borne by the United Kingdom.
2: Mm. The EU 27 seems to have been remarkably unified so far. You've been an ambassador for the EU. How long can this unity last, and where is it most likely to be tested, do you think?
0: Well, I think the experience of the European Union is that you have a great deal of anxious talk, followed frequently by harsh words, followed by a number of long nights of exhausting negotiation, followed by, ultimately, a compromise and an agreement. So I think that while there will be moments during the negotiation when the EU's unity will be put under some stress uh, and clearly there are some countries like Ireland and the Netherlands who will suffer much more from this than others, and their interests will not necessarily be the same as everyone else's. I think we will find, uh, at all stages in the negotiation, a common position.
2: What are Irish government ministers maybe thinking but not, not saying? I mean, what's the mood you know, among the political elite, if you like, in Dublin at the moment?
0: Well, I think the mood would probably be that Brexit was invented in Britain. It's being imposed by Britain on the rest of Europe. And it behoves Britain to come forward with ideas to ensure that Brexit works for all 28 current members of the European Union, and not just for the one member state that's leaving the European Union. It is a British idea, And there is a British responsibility to make sure that this British idea of Brexit works for everybody. It's not a matter for the rest of Europe to be the one that comes forward with the original ideas because it's not the rest of Europe that has initiated this.
2: No, but to go back to your divorce analogy, I suppose you you are, in a sense, don't you have to become engaged and proactive in coming up with ideas? Because if you leave it to the British side, those not may not be, you know, ideas that are to your taste. Aren't you really forced to engage in this, even even if you don't want to?
0: Well, I, I've no I've no doubt that a lot of thought is being given to this. But until, in a sense, we know exactly what relationship Britain envisages having, say, with the customs union and how that can be squared by British lawyers with the requirements of the WTO, which says that any concession the EU might make to Britain has to extend to all its trading partners on a most favoured nation basis, until Britain comes up with a way of explaining how their ideas on having access to the EU market can be reconciled with the most favoured nation principle of the WTO, it's very hard for us on the European side to do much work on this. Alternatively, Britain may come to the view, having explored all of this, that it's not workable and that Brexit, as originally proposed, was never possible and that a different approach has to be taken.
2: Do you mean not going through with Brexit at all or, or having a, a kind well, of I, softer... I think,
0: I think Britain may come to the realisation that Brexit, as they sold it to themselves, isn't feasible. But Britain uh, itself will have to come to that conclusion. Uh, Britain is not going to be told. Britain has to learn by doing, or attempting to do, what they propose, that what they've been proposing is workable.
2: Mm. And you think that even the papers that they started putting out so far don't really address those fundamental issues?
0: No, they're not about substance, they're about procedure. The substance is what level of tariff you're going to charge. Will Britain pursue a cheap food policy? Will Britain automatically accept standards laid down by the EU and rulings laid down by the European Court of Justice? Those are the substantial questions. Those have not been addressed yet. There's no much point people from Ireland or people from France or Germany telling Britain how bad this is. Uh, I think British public opinion has to discover that for itself because this issue of Brexit is all wrapped up with the English sense of who they are and their place in the world. And in a way, Brexit is being used as a means of discovering a new identity. And that's a psychological process rather than an economic one. and. The only way that Britain, I think, can deal with the hard economic consequences of this is by also dealing with this issue of who we are question. And this turning of the back on Europe, which Brexit involves, is a reversal of four or five hundred years of British history. It's, and I, I think Britain has to rethink all of that. Unfortunately, has to rethink it against a very tight timeline.
2: That sounds like a plea not to not to go through with it. I mean, would you would you go that far? Would you say? But I I w-
0: I, don't, I wouldn't I wouldn't make any pleas to Britain.
2: You know, it's a matter for Britain
0: to do this. Uh, we, we will look after ourselves. Eventually, we'll have to do it, and we we will take the opportunities. But Britain has got to work out for itself who it
2: wants to be. Okay, a good note on which to end it. John Bruton, thank you very much. Thank you. That's former Irish Prime Minister John Bruton talking to me via Skype earlier this week. Okay, time once again for EUWTF, and our regular external panellists are on holiday, so a couple of the troops from inside Politico have stepped up, and uh, I'm delighted to welcome Harry Cooper once again. Hi, Harry. Hi there. And Johanna Pluchinska from our tech team. Hi, Johanna. Hi. So, first story is about Donald Trump, a US president and, of course, a golf resort owner in Scotland and his Turnberry uh, Resort. Hotel uh, got a tax rebate in Scotland, £110,000 as part of a scheme meant to help small businesses. Harry, what do you make of this one?
1: Well, I don't think anyone would describe Trump's businesses as small, so I think it's a slightly bizarre situation that he's got a rebate in the first place, but... What I just find very striking is the fact that we're even talking about um, the US president having business interests. And, of course, he's given his business to his, I think, to his children in a, in a specific kind of trust. But he's not gone as far as many other presidents in the past. So it's just a very bizarre thing to read, really, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's surprising. And, uh, you know, in, in in you know what have been a difficult couple of weeks for him, I think it's fair to say, I guess even a £110,000 uh, tax rebate is... Uh, Welcome boost. What do you make of it, Joanna?
4: Well, I think it would be perhaps a more welcome boost for actual small businesses Mm. in the area. I mean, this is a lot of money for some people, and and really it's probably not that much for Trump. I mean, this is a drop in the bucket given his, his massive network of hotels around the world. I'm curious to see how this resort filed their taxes and managed to justify this small business status. I wonder how that would play out if, uh, if you know, maybe they had filed them mm-hmm. differently.
1: Well, yeah, because I mean, the, the the hotel isn't isn't struggling. I mean, the uh, the general manager apparently has reported saying that profits are going to be up to about 16 million next right. this the, year. They seem to have
2: been able to do this because there was uh, a reduction in demand uh, this year, oh, which okay. I guess they were able to argue was as a result of. New tax measures, new, new property tax measures. Or
1: perhaps uh, the re- reduced reduction in demand is because it's got Trump in the name of the hotel. Well, that so would perhaps be an interesting that's question. putting people off going, on, going yeah. on holiday to Scotland. I mean, it hotel. could be, or it could be that, you know,
2: <laughs> that it would have been down even more without the, uh, the Indeed, Trump brand. Yeah. Who, who knows, but it's... Um, it does suggest they've got at least got a very good accountant, right, Joanna?
4: Absolutely. Yeah,
2: okay, great. We'll um, leave that there and move on to a story that you wanted to talk about, Joanna. That's the Cambridge University Press. Tell us more about this one.
4: So last week, the Cambridge University Press said that they had decided to block access online to 315 of their academic articles in China um, through a publication known as the China Quarterly. So they justified this by saying that their importer had asked them to do so and it was a way for them to ensure that the rest of their catalogue was uh, was online. And they were worried that if they refused um, this request that their whole catalogue would be taken down. Um, now, this didn't fly very well with the academic community in the UK or in the rest of Europe. Um, there was a quite an outcry in the form of a petition on Monday saying that, um, you know, this organization has to reinstate the articles and should not bend to the demands of of China and their undemocratic ways. Quickly afterwards, Cambridge University Press said that they will unblock the articles
2: a victory for academic freedom. I'm sure that's um, how any anyway, of the people calling for the, the U-turn would see it. Harry, what do you think?
1: Well, I think there's a, there's a broader point here, which is that there are many, uh, many online companies, tech firms, who uh, are looking to China to boost their profit margins. But of course, that, that comes with risks that by going into a market, you have to respect, well, this is, this is the big debate, I suppose, you, whether you respect or not, um, certain laws that that we in the West might find unpalatable. Um, I think this is something that, that you've seen a lot in your reporting, Joanna, isn't it? You've, and in in sort of companies like Facebook, Microsoft, they're all kind of battling with this kind of uh, did uh, challenge over whether or not to subscribe to a jurisdiction's laws.
4: Absolutely. I mean, you see with with Twitter, for example. You know, they have decided to block certain kinds of content in Turkey because the government mm. has asked them to. And, you know, it's something that if you're a global company and you're operating across borders, um, you know, you also need to survive. I mean, especially with these kinds of companies. I mean, publishing is not exactly thriving at the moment. Mm. So they could benefit enormously from having a market in China. But at the same time, you know, this is something that uh, academic freedom is important. And Mm. I think that for for the audience that they're catering to, they have to strike a balance Mm. between this. And clearly a lot of people said, you know, we we don't trust you unless you do stand up for these ideals, and that's something we've been seeing, you know, this week in the U. S. as well with the attacks in Charlottesville. A lot of companies said we don't stand for racism, we don't stand mm. for for certain things. So
2: I guess it's surprising. I mean, we we have seen that for a while, right? With with companies having to decide where they strike the balance with China in particular. Uh, maybe just surprising that uh, a company that is all about sort of academic freedom and Mm. and publication didn't really that the red lights didn't flash so loudly there right
4: yeah I mean eventually they did I guess that's what matters (laughs)
2: got a little reminder from their community I guess yeah Mm. Uh, finally um, on the podcast sometimes we like to do an EU thumbs up and it certainly looks like it's a thumbs up um, for the EU uh, from a study that was published um, the other day about uh, attitudes to the European Union in, in eight different EU countries and seemed to show quite a dramatic turnaround within a couple of years. So, for example, in terms of people saying that the advantages outweighed the disadvantages of the EU in Germany, a jump from 34% to 64%, and uh, the trend was also up in Spain, in Slovakia, in Sweden, in the Netherlands, in France, and in Italy and the Czech Republic. Um, Harry, what do you put this down to?
1: Well, I think it's fair to say that one of the um, the slightly unexpected results of uh, the decision by the UK to leave the European Union is that everywhere else suddenly everyone loves the European Union, or well, there's there's a big boost in 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 uh, in, in the popularity of, of the European Union. Um, I always think it's quite quite amusing to to remember a lot of the the, the rhetoric that was used by the Leave campaign in the run up to the election, which uh, the referendum which was that we should leave because the European Union is dying, it's collapsing, it's an absolute disaster, everyone hates it. Um, And then a year on, I mean, it's looking not quite like that at all. Mm -hmm. And if anything, the the, the referendum and the decision by the UK to leave, um, suddenly people are actually asking questions about what the EU is. Never Mm -hmm. before have people been been talking about what the EU is quite to the same extent, I'd say. Mm -hmm.
4: I also think, you know... There's a testament to the media here in the coverage of of what Brexit will actually mean. And I think a lot of people have been reading and watching and seeing how, you know, the UK economy stands to suffer. Mm. Um, And a lot of people are seeing, okay, the EU does actually do something for us, even if, you know, we thought it was this invisible, useless force Mm -hmm. that just ate through our tax money. And I also think, you know, Donald Trump plays into this as well, because... I think now, if we look at Angela Merkel and and Emmanuel Macron, a lot of people are saying, you know, these are the new leaders of the Western world. And they're both very pro-EU, and they are talking about using the EU to get their message across. I guess
2: one thing, one health warning that it might be, what you, if you think about 2015, it does show how quickly things change. So if, I, yeah. uh, that means the survey was probably mm. taken around the time of the migration crisis. Yeah. Um, you know, the EU economy a couple of uh, years ago looked very different. It's now had, uh, you know, a sustained period of growth. You know, it just shows, I guess, how, and, and this perhaps then goes back to the EU referendum in in Britain that... You know, people make their decisions, even though these are very yeah. long-term decisions, yeah. very much just as they do in elections, in, in the mood of the moment. You know, and that can change quite dramatically.
1: I mean, public opinion is an extremely fickle thing, and mm-hmm. I think no one other than Prime Minister Theresa May would agree with that. Went into the election riding very high in the polls, and then was a pr- yeah. bit of a disaster for her. Um, yeah, so I think I think always with these with these surveys, they're, they're they're interesting snapshots, but I think uh, yeah, public opinion is a is a notoriously malleable thing.
2: Yeah. But uh, it does. It does look like the EU has a has a new lease of life here. Just in your, in the area that you cover, uh, Joanna, do you think it's? Do you think people are aware of what the EU do in the tech field? Do you think, you know, some of the things they've done, for example, like imposing a big fine on on, on Google, does that um, does that do normal people, if you like, aware of that? Does it influence their view of the EU?
4: I think it really depends. I think, for example, in in a place like Germany, um, there's a strong culture of privacy, and there's a lot of criticism of the big American platforms who are coming in and, hmm. you know, dominating and and stealing the the place from smaller European tech startups. So in some countries, it absolutely is a narrative. And and I think Margaret Vesteyer, because of, you know, the, the Google decision and also uh, the Apple tax case where... The competition
2: commissioner, I should just say, for non-EU nerds. Go ahead. <laughs> Not that I'm saying either of you guys are nerds. But just, you know, they're among our listeners. Go ahead.
4: And I think she's been turned into kind of an idol even in the U.S. for people saying, you know, the US government isn't doing anything, and, and Europe is, and Europe is watching this, and, and they're playing a role in this. So I think um, there, there is kind of this mania now surrounding certain personalities in the European Union for, for standing up for things that you know maybe you didn't do as actively or as well before.
2: Right. Great. Okay. Uh, Joanna, Harry, thank you both uh, very much. Um, catch you next time. And that wraps up another EUWTF. That's it for another EU Confidential. Remember, you can reach us via email at playbook at politico.eu. We're always happy to hear your feedback. And we're also interested in your dear political dilemmas. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that it comes to you automatically every week. And special thanks this week go to Cynthia Crute and Wei Dong Lin. We'll be back next week with another EU
3: Confidential.